0: You guys. Well, hey, uh, we have had uh, we have had a time up here talking through a lot of really important things. We've wrestled with the idea that God crafted us, that He's our Creator, He's the Crafter, that He is the one who brought us into existence, that He is infinite, perfect, holy, all powerful, sovereign, and that He freely chose to create you and I, to bring you and I into the world. But sin, sin distorted our relationship with God. It broke. It severed our relationship with God. In fact, sin brought death to all things. And my hope is that last night, as you opened up and shared with your cabin, that you were able to talk about some stuff that maybe you haven't talked about ever before, or at least you haven't talked about in a long time. But last night, in me, I was, I was, I was longing to get to the point where tonight, we could continue that conversation because if we all went home after last night, if we went home tomorrow or this morning before talking about what we are going to talk about tonight, we would have missed it. Remember I said, God hates sin because sin hurts you. And so God in his perfect love and holiness and justice and mercy and grace He looked out at you and I, full of sin, with a problem too big for us to handle on our own. And he did something about it. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. Uh, Let me start here though. Uh, Several years ago, um, my wife and I were having a conversation that we had had basically since the very beginning of our marriage and the conversation went something like this. Sarah said to me, Eric, you have a significant snoring problem, okay? She's like you you do, you snore. And I and I go I go, "Honey, you got to understand. I'm a man. Like that's what men do. Men snore." And she's like, no, Eric, you don't understand. There's snoring, and then there's the sound that like a dying bear makes. That's what you sound like, okay? And so for years, she was like, Eric, we need to go. We need to go get you at a sleep study. We got to figure out what's going on with you. And She's like, I'm literally afraid you're going to die every single night because I would kind of gasp for air, and I put it off, and I put it off until finally I said, okay, I'm going to go. And so I don't know if any of you have ever done this before, but I went in for a sleep study and it's kind of the weirdest doctor appointment experience you'll ever have. Because I show up to the doctor's appointment at eight o'clock at night. So it's already dark. There's not another soul in the parking lot. I park, I literally look around, there's no other cars. I walk into this doctor's office, it's very dark, I get in, someone checks me in, we walk down this hallway that kind of looks like the cross between like a hospital and a hotel, we walk down this hallway, they open up one of the doors, I have not seen another person other than the person who's ushering me into this room, and all of a sudden there's a bed in this room, there's a bathroom, and I remember noticing that the bathroom door was open, and I thought to myself, oh, I know I'm going to have a hard time sleeping at night if I don't go to the bathroom, so I need to make sure I go to the bathroom before I go to sleep tonight. Well, they sit me down on the bed and and the guy and I start talking and he starts sharing how he's a Christian and, and starts asking me questions. And I tell him I'm a pastor and we start talking. And before I realize it, we're just caught up in this conversation and he's got me hooked up to all these monitoring things. Okay. So almost on every one of my fingers and all up my chest and on my legs and on my head, like they're monitoring every part of me and he's hooking me up to all of these pieces. And all of a sudden I realize he's towards the end of it and it's about bedtime and I have not gone to the yet. And so I, I'm sitting there, and, and, and here's the thing you got to know about me. Um, I, I, maybe you're not like this, but for me, like, I hate scary things. Like, I hate scary things. In fact, I, I used to get really scared as a kid, so I try to avoid at all costs. Like, the scariest thing we watch in our household is Cocoa Melon. That is the <laughs> limit for us. That's the limit of scare in our house. So I'm already kind of weirded out. I'm in this room. I don't know where I'm You know, I've never been here before, whatever. The, the, the technician, he's about to leave. He turns off the TV, and right as he's about to leave, he says, hey, pastor, i got to ask you a question. Do you believe in ghosts? And already I'm like, nah, do not talk to me about ghosts. Like, don't. And so I I go into my answer. I go, no, I don't believe in ghosts. I I think that's one of the ways Satan kind of trips us up spiritually, distracts us spiritually from actually connecting with the one true God, with Jesus Christ. And so, no, I don't believe in ghosts. And he goes, yeah, 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 I I don't believe in ghosts either. But the last guy who slept in this bed said he woke up in the middle of the night and somebody was tickling his feet. didn't want to hear that, right? He starts telling me some other stories like this, and you guys, I'm like, I am not about it. Now, remember, remember, I really got to go to the bathroom. I can't go to the bathroom. He's telling me these stories. All of a sudden, literally right after saying that, he goes, well, good night closes the door, okay? And it's pitch black in the room. And all of a sudden, all I'm thinking about is, dude, creepy foot tickler is in the bathroom waiting for me to fall asleep. I remember that night, I didn't really sleep very well. In fact, it took me a while to fall asleep. And I was really wrestling with in and of myself. I'm like, I don't believe in those things, but why is it messing with me? And I realized it's because we are all on a pursuit To answer the question, what is truth? What can we count on? What can we know for certain? Tonight I want to talk about what you can know for certain. Tonight I want to talk about truth. Tonight I want to talk about the lengths to which God went to save you and I. To rescue you and I to invite you and I into a relationship with the craftsman, with the one who crafted us. We left off last night talking about how the reality is things are not okay. The greatest problem in the world today is sin. Everything traces back to it. And sin is not just out there, it's in here. That I'm the problem, you're the problem. We, we all have chosen sin, that Adam and Eve weren't the only ones who have done that. We have all chosen sin with our thoughts, our words, and our actions to disobey God, to dishonor God, to dethrone God, and put ourselves in his place. And I told you last night, the sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. It will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it must be dealt with. Sin sends you running to hiding. It blinds you. It desensitizes you. But tonight... Tonight, I have the privilege of opening the scriptures with you and showing you how God chose to respond to you and I, that when we were running away from God, he did something on our behalf that is almost unfathomable. I want you to find me in Ephesians chapter four tonight. We're going to be looking at a bunch of different scriptures, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter four. This has been our anchor text our entire weekend together. Ephesians chapter four, before we look at the verses we're going to talk about tonight, I want to remind you, Paul has said, give up that feudal way of thinking, that empty way of thinking, that empty way of living with a hardened heart. And then he turns the corner, and in verse 20, Paul says this, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth. You see that word? Paul says, I'm about to drop some truth on you. And it's not my truth, it's not your truth, it's the truth. And the truth is, this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness, that, 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 that popular biblical word, it means to have right relationship with God and right relationship with others. Do you remember how we talked about how Adam and Eve had that? That in the very beginning, they had a right relationship with God and they had a right relationship with each other. And here Paul says, there is a way for you to have righteousness again. For you to be in right relationship with the one who crafted you and for you to be in right relationships with others. There's a way for you to be forgiven. There's a way for you to have freedom and to be restored There's a way for you to experience peace even if all of the circumstances around you are chaos. Even if the world around you is imploding and exploding, you can have peace and confidence and assurance that you're right with God and that you'll spend all of eternity with him. How do we get there? And I think there's some of you here tonight who... After where we landed the plane last night, you're wondering, okay, what do I do? What do I do with this weight that's on my shoulders? The great British thinker, Christian writer, C.S. Lewis, he said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. You can't just say Jesus is a good teacher, he was a healer, he did some nice things, but he's not Lord because he claimed to be God over and over again throughout the gospels. Jesus claimed not just to be a good teacher or a healer, he claimed to be God. So the reality is this: tonight, students, you either you have to decide, is Jesus a liar? Was he trying to just deceive people? Was he a lunatic? Was he out of his mind? Did he think he was God, but he actually wasn't, or is he Lord? And if he's a liar or a lunatic, dismiss him and have nothing to do with him. And all of this is a waste of time. But if he's Lord, then all that sin that we talked about last night, he can deal with. Those problems that are too big for you to handle on your own, Satan, who's too powerful for you to overcome on your own, that Jesus can do something about that. And so the question is tonight is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 to 19, it says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the 12. Those were his disciples, his followers. He took them aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, check this, to be mocked flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples are dumbfounded, they're confused, they don't understand what's going on. It's like, Jesus, we are just beginning this movement. This is only just starting, what do you mean? It's about to end, what do you mean you're about to die? But Jesus says, no, you gotta listen to this, I'm gonna be mocked, I'm gonna be flogged, I'm gonna be crucified. And then he says the craziest thing of all, He says, and on the third day, I'm gonna come back from the dead. And then what Jesus does is in front of their faces, all of that comes true. All of that happens. And I'll suggest to you now, and I'll suggest it at the end, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, that is a game changer. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's a liar. But if he rose from the dead, you can trust every single promise he's made to you and everything he's done for you. Well, at this time in Jesus' ministry, he really had two groups of people who hated him. He had the the religious elite on one side who were so angry at Jesus because he was constantly claiming that he was God and that was blasphemy. That was like the worst of sins. And so they hated him. They were done with him. But then on this side, he had another group of people who who were beginning to hate him, and it was the government of his day. Because the government of his day, the Romans believed that Caesar was God. And so for Jesus to be claiming to be the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, was incredibly offensive to the Romans and to the religious elite. And so he had these two powerful groups that hated him. And they came together to do something about that. On Thursday night, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he broke some bread and passed around a cup of wine and and they shared a meal together. And he said, guys, this body represents my body being broken and the the cup represents my blood that's about to be spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. And the disciples, again, are confused. They don't understand what's about to happen. Later that night, Jesus takes a few of his closest friends with him and they go into this garden and they begin to pray Jesus says, I want you guys to pray for me right here. And then he goes a little bit farther on his own and he starts praying. And Luke, the gospel writer, Luke, who was a doctor and a physician, he he, he lets us know on this little detail. He says, Jesus was in so much anguish, so much turmoil. There was so much troublesome going on within him that he literally is sweating drops of blood because he knows what's about to come. Jesus prays in the garden. He, he says, Father, if there's any way for you to take this cup from me, please do so, but not my will be done, your will be done. Jesus prays again, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, in other words, for me not to go through all of this, Please take it but not my will be done but your will be done and he's dropping sweats of blood because he is anticipating the physical suffering that he is about to endure but even more so he's he's anticipating experiencing the full weight of sin and ultimate separation from God that you and I would experience apart from Jesus Later that night Jesus is arrested some religious leaders and government officials collude together and they arrest Jesus and, and they blindfold him. And they start spitting on him and they start striking him. And they say, if you're a prophet, why don't you tell us who's hitting you, who's spitting on you? And they're mocking him. The author of the universe, the creator of the world, the one who breathed life into these people who are now using their breath to mock their creator and they don't even realize it. And Jesus is mocked, just like he said he would be. He goes to bed that night and Friday morning wakes up and I imagine he didn't get a whole lot of sleep because he's woken up early and he's brought before the, the, the governor. Pontius Pilate, the governor of that part of Israel, and he, he, he's brought before him, and, and Pontius Pilate can't really figure out why he's before him, but he can't ignore the crowds behind Jesus that are chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, Pilate, the Roman governor, says, okay, but before you crucify him, flog him. Remember, these texts are written 2,000 years ago when flogging and crucifixion were so commonplace. Everybody already had pictures in their mind. They, they, They had seen it hundreds of times before. But for us that are so removed, we don't oftentimes have a picture of what that was like. What it meant is that Jesus was stripped completely naked. His arms were tied around a pole as a crowd gathered around to laugh and to cheer and to scream as as this was some sort of entertainment for them. Two Roman guards were on either side of Jesus and they had whips in their hands with nails and rocks and glass at the end of them. And 39 times they whipped Jesus' back and it took two Roman guards to accomplish that because the task was so tiresome that not one person could do it. 39 times they whip Jesus as his skin is falling off, as he's experiencing the brutality of this this method of torture. I mean, the one who knit these men together is now being undone by them. Historically, many people who were flogged died from it. But that's not what happened to Jesus. He was untied and probably collapsed to the ground. And and just like Jesus said, he was flogged. Well then they made Jesus grab a giant piece of wood and carry it up a hill about a mile away. One of the Gospel writers, one of the historical accounts of the life of Jesus tells us that, that Jesus couldn't even carry it all the way up, and so a man was grabbed from the side to carry it the rest of the way. Once Jesus got to the very top of the hill, his body in shock. They laid him down over that long piece of wood, and they felt for the depression in his wrist, and they drove one nail through his wrist into the wood. They stretched out his other hand and felt for the depression in his wrist and drove a nail through that piece of wood And then they put one foot over the other and put one last nail through both of his feet into the piece of wood and he was hoisted up. And that began Jesus' crucifixion. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified for six hours. And you see, in in ancient Greco-Roman Culture and in that part of the world, you, you didn't die from crucifixion because of blood loss. You died from the inability to breathe, from literally suffocating. For six hours, Jesus pushes up on his feet to take a breath, causing excruciating pain in his feet, just to take a breath in. And then he exhales, dropping down, causing excruciating pain in his wrist. And for six hours, he's doing this over and over again, causing excruciating pain. And I use that word intentionally because excruciating, the English word excruciating, comes from the Latin word excruciare, which literally means out of crucifixion. The very picture of excruciating pain is what Jesus endured on the cross. And and, and yet Jesus didn't just talk about mercy and compassion and grace and his great love for people. He modeled it. In fact, in, in those moments as he's catching his breath, he'll look out at the crowd and he'll say things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He had a conversation with one of the men being crucified next to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He looked out at his mom who was close enough to hear him whisper. Imagine she's watching her baby boy who is grown up hanging on a cross as a thief, as as, as being, being murdered like a horrible criminal. And he looks out at her and he says, John, my disciple, take care of my mom. Mom, John's going to take care of you. The epitome of compassion and grace. And for six hours, Jesus hangs on that cross until finally he cries out, It is finished. And then he dies. Why did he say it is finished? What did he mean? Here's what he meant. He meant, you know, that sin and Satan that's too powerful for you, that's too big for you? It's finished having its hold on you. Sin being the final sentence of your life, it's finished. Sin winning is finished, death reigning is finished. That sin separating all of humanity from God for those that would receive Christ, that, that it's been finished, that, that, that separation has been now closed, that we could be with Christ, that we could know God, that we could be, experience love. That it's finished. And that new life has begun. But maybe some of you are going, okay, Eric, I, I just don't get it. Like, w- what is the connection between what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a cross and me? Like, what, what, what is the connection there to, to help me with this? I need my friend, uh, uh, Sebi. Where's Sebi? Sebi, where you at, dude? Can you come up here real quick? Guys, give it up for Sebi. Give it for Sebi. Okay, Sebi's going to help me with this. So, Sebi, have you ever been handcuffed before? Yes. You have? Mm-hmm. Don't want to hear that story. Okay, here we go, Sebi. <laughs> Let me see your arm, bud. Let me see your on. Okay. Is that okay right there? Okay, so here's the problem. Here's the problem. When you and I think about our sin, oftentimes we think about it as, oh, man, it's that thing I did last weekend, that thing that I posted about, that thing that my parents didn't find out about, that thing that's in the past, whew, we made it past that, my parents never found out, I can move on. That when we think of sin, we're like, oh yeah, it's that thing that I did, but now because I've moved past that, my sin is in my past and I can move forward. But because God is true and because he's loving, he's always gonna be honest with you and I. And what he says in his word is that sin is literally death. For the wages of sin is death. That sin is described as a slavery. That apart from Jesus Christ, every single one of us is enslaved. We are handcuffed to our sin. And so when you see this luggage, I want you to think about it as the baggage of sin. That it's literally a part of us. It's connected to us. That there's nothing we can do to separate ourselves from it. In fact, we try unsuccessfully. Here's what I want you to do. The first thing we try to do oftentimes with with our sin when we're aware of it is we try to just hide it from everyone else. We curate the best pictures to post online. We, we, we try to convince people that we have it all together. When somebody says, hey, how are you doing? We're like, yeah, hey, I'm good, I'm good, I'm fine. And we never actually open up about what's going on. We try to put on this image that everything's okay. And here's what I want you to do, Sebby. I want you to try to hide your sin from everybody here. <laughs> is, is that your best attempt? That's your best attempt. Okay. I'm sure you're a really talented kid. Not at this moment, but that's okay. You're really talented. Otherwise, I'm sure, because let me just ask you a question. How many of you can still see Sebi's sin? Okay. So you'll realize, and you oftentimes do, it, it doesn't work to try to hide it. So what we try to do is we try to run from it. We delete that account. We start a new one. We switch schools. We switch churches. We switch friend groups. We, we, we run back to, even at times, reading the Bible, not with the motivation of connecting with Christ, but as a way of trying to earn back God's love. So here's what I want you to do, Sebby. I want you to try to run from your sin. Run from your sin, brother. Yeah. Okay, okay, whoa, whoa, be careful. We got expensive equipment. You're good, keep running. Run from your sin. Okay, okay, come on back here, come on back here. Now, are you a track star? Because that was pretty good, right? Are you pretty good? Okay, all right, here's the thing. You observed what I observed. Wherever Sebi went, his sin went with him. So the reality is, this is our condition apart from Christ. We could try to hide it. We could try to run from it. But it sticks with us because we are enslaved to it. Like I said last night, it's bigger than we can handle on our own. And so what does Jesus have to do with all of this? Well, 2,000 years ago, because Jesus was God, is God, because he lived a perfectly sinless life, he was the only one qualified to take our place, to be our substitute. And he chose to do that. This is just mind-blowing to me, that when you and I were running away from God, when we were enemies of God, he came running towards us. And he said, all that sin that you can't deal with on your own, I wanna take it so you could be forgiven and free and follow me and live with me for all of eternity. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus did something for you before you were ever even born. And what he did is on the cross, let's hope I brought the right key, (laughs) on the cross, what he did is he took your sin for you. Yeah. Hold on, Sebby, hold on. And the reality is this, Jesus Christ did for you and Sebby, and did for me what no boyfriend or girlfriend could ever do for us. He, he did for you, he did for you what no paycheck could ever do for you. He, he did for you what no zip code or family of origin could ever do for you that Jesus held nothing back to win you back because he loves you, because he wants you to be with him. Give it up for Sebi. Thank you, Sebi. You're awesome. (laughs) Do you see how God prioritized your life over his own? And so that story that happened 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just an amazing story then, it's an amazing story now. And so far, Jesus has done three of the four things he said were going to happen. He said he'd be mocked. It happened. He said he'd be flogged. It happened. And then he said he would be crucified. And it happened. But to be honest, if the last one didn't happen, then Jesus is just a liar. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's not worth following. In fact, students, I, I got to tell you this, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he didn't die for your sins. If he didn't rise from it, if he didn't, if he didn't complete the job, then you and I are still handcuffed to our sin. And maybe you're going, wait, is that, is that true? It's in the Bible. First Corinthians 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus has not been raised, what I'm doing up here is pointless and you coming to camp is pointless. Paul doubles down on it, the next verse, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Essentially, Paul says, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, whatever happens on this stage is meaningless and whatever faith you're putting in Jesus is meaningless. But if he did, If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then that means he is God. Then that means he is the most important thing you could fix your gaze on, that you could give your attention and your time and your energy to. He is the greatest, most important thing on planet earth. To which all of you are asking, why in the world would we believe that he actually rose from the dead? And on your own, I want you to go and read 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul gives four reasons that you can believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to give you two right now, but I want you to read it on your own. He's going to give you four reasons why you can believe Jesus rose from the dead. The first reason that I'm going to cover that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15 is in verse 5. It says that Jesus appeared to the disciples. Why is that significant? Here's why. Because on the Friday that Jesus was crucified, none of his disciples were willing to die with him. In fact, they they loved Jesus. They watched him do miracles. But when it came time to die alongside Jesus, they were not willing to go with him. And so Jesus died alone. But on Sunday, they saw with their own eyes, this Jesus that they had walked with, that they had talked with, that they had loved, that they had watched perform miracles. They saw him be true to his word and come back from the dead. And when they saw it with their own eyes, it changed everything for them. And the reason I believe that is because history tells us that all of those disciples went out telling the whole world, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And not only did they tell the whole world that, but it cost them their very lives. One of them was boiled in oil, banished to an island far from his family. Another one was crucified upside down. Some were beheaded. All of them were tortured and abused and they lived, they lived challenging, difficult lives, not one of ease and comfort. And it's not because they had walked with Jesus, it's because they couldn't stop and they wouldn't stop telling the world Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven. What explains that? How, how do you explain that on Friday, They're not willing to die for Jesus, but then come Sunday, not only are they willing, but they end up giving up their lives for Jesus. The only logical explanation is that they saw Jesus come back from the dead with their own eyes, and that changed everything. The second piece of evidence that I want to talk about that the apostle Paul gives is this. He says that Jesus appeared to James. James was the brother of Jesus. In the Gospels, before Jesus rose from the dead, his family is a little skeptical about what he's doing. His brothers doubt him and even think he's crazy. And so there's no way that his brother James would have just bought into this. But then he saw his brother come back from the dead. And what does James choose to do? He becomes the leader of the church that meets in Jerusalem. And during a transition of power, a group of people, they throw him off a cliff. He lands on the ground and a mob surrounds him with sticks and rocks and they beat him until he dies. They did not beat him and murder him because he was the brother of Jesus. They beat him and murdered him because of his testimony, because he went around the whole world saying, my brother is my Lord and my savior. In fact, that's how he opens his letter in the New Testament. He says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just his brother. He is his Lord. How many of you got siblings? Raise your hand if you got siblings. What would it take for you to believe that your sibling was God? What would that take? That'd be crazy. And yet, check this. Check this. James. James believed because he saw. He saw with his own eyes his brother come back from the dead. And now I turn to you. What are you going to do with this message? With this gospel? With this truth? Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? To me, the evidence points in the direction of he's actually Lord. In John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say God hated the world. And some of you, maybe even after last night, maybe you were thinking, man, does does God hate me? No, 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 no. The scriptures are clear. God loves you. He adores you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that anyone who comes to a Christian camp will have eternal life. It doesn't say anyone who grew up in the church will have eternal life. It doesn't say anyone who, have, who has Christian parents or anyone who has suffered a lot or anyone whose best friend is Christian. No, it says anyone who believes and trusts. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the guy I mentioned who was boiled in oil and banished to an island He endured so much torture and pain, and yet he was so captivated by the truth that he saw Jesus rise from the dead that he wrote these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Did you catch this? This might be right now my favorite Bible verse in the entire scriptures, because what I see here is this upside down, incredible, doesn't make sense promise that if I will bring my very worst to Jesus, if I will bring the worst of myself to Jesus, he will give me the best of himself. Do you see what it says? That if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge we're a sinner and we need a savior and we believe that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the dead, that he is the God of the universe. Here's what he promises. To be faithful. You know what that means, students? He's never going away. He's never gonna betray you. He's never gonna forsake you. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna look at your life and go, wow, this is too messy. I I, I can't handle this. But not only is he faithful, he's just. That means your sin, that's the problem that has created the separation between you and God, that he justly dealt with it. It's been dealt with so much so that he's actually forgiven you. God, God does not hold grudges. He hands out grace. And so he's forgiven you. He's not going to keep bringing it up. He doesn't want to keep rubbing it in your face. And then he promises to purify us. That means he's invested in you. That means the transformation he's doing right now in your heart, he doesn't want to stop. He wants to continue. And our last scripture, the apostle Paul, he wrote these words in Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's this guy at our church who made most of his living and most of his career working in the uh, adult industry. He eventually hit rock bottom after sleeping with countless people, after using countless drugs, after making millions of dollars, he hits rock bottom and he surrenders his life to Jesus. One night he comes to our youth group and he shares his testimony. He says, can I invite my friend Ryan? And I said, sure. Invite your friend Ryan who didn't know Jesus. And Ryan showed up and Ryan's is like 400 pound linebacker football looking dude. And he's sitting in the back of the chapel. And after my friend shared his testimony, we gave an invitation similar to this for students to surrender their lives to Christ. And Ryan raised his hand and started moving down the aisle. And and when you're that big of a dude and you start going, it's hard to get stopping. So he's just moving his way down. And I didn't know what he was going to do. I didn't know if he was angry. I didn't know what was going on, but he comes running down the aisle and he says, I want that. Two weeks later, my friend and I drive over to his house and we sit with him at his dinner table. We just share the gospel with him. He confesses his sin and he's crying. I mean, this this big like Hulk-like guy and he's just crying, weeping, confessing his sin. And for two weeks, this guy was on fire. It was during the pandemic. So he was inviting friends over to his house to watch church online. He was reading his Bible I mean, he was all in for Jesus. And then one morning his wife woke up, walked out to the garage and saw him passed out dead. I remember when I got the phone call and my friend and I drove over to his house just thinking about how fragile life is, how uncertain life is. And how grateful I am that Ryan chose to surrender his life to Jesus. Because that is the most important decision. More important than if you'll get married someday. More important than the university you'll go to. More important than the salary you'll take or the job you'll have. The most important decision that you can make is who is Jesus? So I want to invite every student right now to close their eyes. And I wanna quickly talk to four groups tonight. That in fact, I think everyone in this room fits into one of these four groups. There's some of you tonight who have never before surrendered your life to Jesus. And after hearing the gospel, after hearing what he did for you and the evidence proving that he rose from the dead, You're realizing you didn't just come to church camp for a good time, that God brought you here to make it crystal clear to you that he loves you so much that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and he wants to invite you to believe him, to trust in him, and to follow him. There's another group of people here tonight. And maybe for you, you have... uh, At one point, you were close with Jesus, but these last months, these last years, you've wandered. You've been running and hiding. And tonight, you're sensing that God is prompting you to come home, to return to him. That he wants you to know you're forgiven and loved and and you want to recommit. You want to make a decision again to make Jesus the Lord of your life. I think there's a third group here. I think there's some of you here tonight who... You're not sure about following Jesus yet because you still have questions. Whether it's an intellectual or an emotional question, you want to talk about that and you're ready to take a next step to say, you know what, I'm not going to let those questions just linger anymore. I'm going to address them because God wants to answer those questions or maybe there's a fourth group here tonight. Maybe you're sensing this whole weekend that God is calling you to do something That he's calling you to, to something bold. That he wants you to live out your faith in a way that scares you and terrifies you a little bit. But it's clear this is what he's called you to. And maybe you're sensing a call into ministry. You're sensing a call into missions. You're sensing a call from God to start a Bible club, to share Jesus, to share the gospel with your soccer team or to talk to your family, your parents about Jesus. I don't know what it is for you to start some nonprofit organization that helps people experience Jesus. I don't know what it is for you, but this whole weekend, God has been pressing on your heart that it's time for you to say yes to that terrifying but holy calling that he's put on your life. So I wonder which one of those connects with you. With every eye closed, if you're in this room tonight and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus before, you've never said yes to Jesus, that that you have not followed him, this is new for you, and you realize that he is who he said he is, that he loves you, and that you want to begin a relationship with Jesus right now, You're ready to put your faith and your trust in him. And you don't have all the answers. You're not sure about all of it, but you know that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Lord of the universe. And you want to be right with God and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus. If that's you tonight, would you right now with every eye closed, would you raise your hand in the air? Would you raise your hand in the air if you're beginning a relationship with Jesus? Heavenly Father, I thank you for these students that are choosing for the first time to surrender their lives to you. God, I pray that they would know that based on their profession of faith, that they're forgiven, that they're saved, that the Holy Spirit is coming into their lives and that they're just beginning this adventure with you. With every eye closed, there are some of you tonight who you know that God's calling you to repent. He's calling you to return back to him. If that's you tonight, I want you to raise your hand in the air as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm sorry I haven't been following you and I'm I'm ready to come home. Would you raise your hands high? Jesus, thank you for these students. Would they know that you love them so much that you have not only forgiven their past, but you've forgiven their present, you've forgiven their future and that you are welcoming them home to you. With every eye closed, there's some of you tonight who you're ready to actually ask those questions. Whatever that thing is that's getting in the way of you saying yes to Jesus. Instead of just using those questions to justify sin in your life and, and you just kind of ignoring them, you're saying, okay, for me, my next step is I'm going to actually ask those questions. I'm going to explore this Jesus more. If tonight that's you, if if, if you still have some questions and you're willing to say, you know what, I'm going to take a step and I'm going to ask those questions, would you raise your hand up in the air? God, I thank you for those students who are willing to acknowledge that there's some things holding them back. God, I pray that you would address those questions, that you would speak to them. And then the last group, I think there's some of you here tonight. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. That God has been placing something on your life, a calling on your life. Whether it's to go into ministry, whether it's to become a missionary, whether it's to start a Christian club or to share your faith in a bold way. I don't know what it is for you, but God's been stirring something in you and you have not wanted to say yes to it because it seems bigger than you could do on your own. And it is. And that's what will make it so miraculous. And you're a little nervous about it, but, but you know that God has called you to do something big and bold with your faith in Christ. If that's you, would you boldly raise your hands up in the air right now? As a way of saying, Jesus, I am going to say yes to what you have called me to. God, I thank you that you know every single one of these student stories. You know what it is that you have put on their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give them the confidence to go down the mountain, to go back into their homes, back into their communities, and to not just settle for, oh, that was a camp high moment, but instead that their decision right now to say yes to the bold thing you've called them to, that they would follow through with it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Now, students, I want you to open your eyes real quick. Something really exciting happened in this place tonight. Uh, There were several of you who decided to follow Jesus for the first time, who decided to repent, who who decided to, (laughs) who said, I still have some questions. And then some of you that said, God's calling me to something. And I, I want us to just celebrate with all of heaven. Heaven is celebrating with the decisions that were made. And this is the best place for you to acknowledge those decisions that you made so that people can support you. And so I'm gonna ask you right now to be really bold and courageous. This is the safest place to do that. As a, way of, as a way of declaring whatever decision you made before the Lord so that your peers and your youth pastors and leaders can hold you accountable and can encourage you. And so that we can celebrate with all of heaven. If you were in that first group that raised your hand to surrender to Christ yes, for the first time, I want you to stand up on the count of three so we can celebrate. One, two, three. I love it. Now, if you were in that second group that said, man, I haven't been living right. I need to follow Jesus. I want to turn back to him. Would you stand up on the count of three so we can celebrate? One, two, three. That's awesome. You can have a seat. Now, for those of you For those of you that said, you know what, I'm not ready yet, but I'm going to take a step of faith, and I'm going to ask those questions, and I'm going to seek out answers. I'm so proud of you that raised your hand for that group. On the count of three, I want you to stand up because I want you to know that we're proud of you for making that decision, and that we want to walk alongside you and support you and help you. So if you raise your hand saying, I still have some questions, would you stand up on the count of three? One, two, three. love it. I love it. Thank you. And then lastly, lastly, there was many of you who said, Jesus, I know you're calling me to something scary and big, and I'm going to say yes. And we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate that God has put a call on your life. And we may not know exactly what it is yet, and I hope you share whichever group you were with. Share it with your counselors and youth pastors tonight, but we want to celebrate that God put a calling on some of your lives this weekend and tonight. And so if you were one of those people in the last group that said, I am going to say yes to the bold thing that God has put on my life and called me to do, would you stand up on the count of three? One, two, three. As we continue, you guys can have a seat. As we continue in worship, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your salvation. I thank you for the promise that what you did 2,000 years ago is just as good today. That the good news, the gospel is for all people in all times, in all locations. And that tonight, Jesus, you saved us. You drew us back to yourself. You helped us to take that next step to ask those questions and and you helped many of us say yes to the bold thing you were calling us to do. Now cement these decisions in our hearts and our lives. We thank you for your good news. We thank you that you died and rose from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.